Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. I'm Kate Midden here with our West Africa correspondent, Kristen Roby, who's going to take us inside the Ebola response that is ongoing, currently ongoing in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kate. So as you know, this outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo actually um, was announced officially on May 8th. So we're over one month in. Um, and it's in the Bikoro region, um, which is in the northwestern portion of the Democratic of the DRC. Um, as of June 19th, there have been a Tola outbreak um, in the DRC and there are fears stemming from the West Africa outbreak that we all know so well in 2014 that ended with around 11,000 deaths. Right now, we're nowhere near that number. We're nowhere near um, this type of a mass outbreak. However, this is definitely something that we want to look out for. Let me take you back just a little bit more inside. Um, this is something that started in a village area and since has spread to two to three more regions. Um, and so we are a bit concerned about this spread. Also, if we think about the geography of the region. We're here right along, um, the outbreak is right along the, the Congo River. And so that is also causing concern in terms of containment efforts. Um, historically, the DRC has been well known for containing the um, Ebola outbreaks um, quite well. And well, we should mention you in the story that you published, I sure. believe it was last week, that this is actually DRC's ninth Ebola outbreak in the last 40 years, but I believe it's the first since the devastating Ebola outbreak that killed 11,000 people in 2014. Right. So actually, a fun fact, um, Ebola actually gets its name from um, a tributary river that spills into the Congo River, which is called the Ebola River. Um, and that's where the first case in 1976, I believe, back even when the country was known as Zaire, um, had their first um, um, death to, to this um, disease. And so, yes, this is not the first go round with this disease. Um, and I think since the 2014, the response efforts and also the quick action has definitely been um, part of the containment efforts, part of the uh, response strategy. And it's also worked very well in keeping the virus contained. So I want to get into kind of the practicalities and logistics of the response in a minute. But you were just, you know, telling us about the geography of the region. Is that is the geography the biggest concern right now in terms of containment or kind of what are what makes this outbreak so concerning to the international community and obviously to the people who live in this village and in the DRC? Sure. So let's go back to the geography piece. Um, DRC is one of the largest, most populated countries in Africa, okay? And it is surrounded by nine other countries. So there is a large potential for this to become a regional outbreak, if not contained. Um, along the Congo River, there are several um, entry points into the country. Um, and so there is a chance, um, there is the appropriate concern, I would say, that this could spread if not contained appropriately. I mean, already I think this is something that is of um, that the international community is aware of, and um, we can get a, um, talk a little bit later about what is being done to avoid um, this this outbreak spilling over into bordering countries. Yeah, certainly, I mean, last I guess it was just last month. Um, you know, at DevEx we were at the World Health Assembly, and the anxiety over Ebola is very palpable. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the immediate reaction because I believe it was about a twenty-six million dollar funding appeal went out 
Peter Salama, who you've interviewed and you have quoted in your stories, you know, mentioned to us last month, you know, it's maybe sounds like a lot of money, but the last Ebola outbreak cost between three or four billion dollars. What has the response been on the funding side and kind of what what who has kind of come to the fore as like the main actors in this response? Sure. So when we think about the response, there has been a multi-pronged approach. Um, one that is um, definitely getting the international community engaged with the health workers that are on the ground. Um, when I spoke to uh, Ibrahim Afal, who is the uh, regional emergency response coordinator for Africa at the World Health Organization, he explained to me how international um, players were using their comparative advantage to actually respond where they have those strengths. So, for example, um, MSF, Medicine Sans Frontières, they are working on case management and actually working to strengthen health facilities um, with the doctors that are um, the volunteer doctors that work with them. Um, also, we know that Red Cross was helping with dignified burials um, because we do have to be careful when burying those who have been infected because the disease does live on um, in dead bodies um, and can be spread through bodily fluids. We also know about traditional burials. Um, that that had been a problem in West Africa. That, I, I remember that in the last Ebola outbreak that that was a major, major issue because the disease is so contagious, particularly with dead bodies. And when you're talking about grieving your loved ones, that yeah. that was something that was a major source of transmission. Absolutely. And it's something that has to be considered when we think about um, cultural practices in these regions, you know. Sometimes in our interventions um, in the development community, we've, we've had to learn over the years how to tailor those interventions for um, local populations. But um, to give you a little bit more um, in this particular response, they also did um, what they called ring vaccinations, where they use their expertise to closely monitor the um, contacts of those who were confirmed cases and also the contacts of contacts. So all of their surrounding community, ideally, or in, in a sense, was is being monitored. We do know that there is a 21 incubation period, so there is a three-week monitoring that needs to take place to be absolutely sure um, that those contacts and contacts of contacts are not infected. Um, and so that was done. There was also this um, time they used, um, they introduced the Ebola vaccine. I was going to say, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about kind of the practice of ring vaccination, but you're touching on something that is so fundamental here that like the world has something it didn't have before, which is this vaccine. Exactly. And so it has not been internationally um, um, acknowledged as the official vaccine for Ebola. Um, however, it was tested in Guinea um, around the, the, the ending of the, the 2014 outbreak, and it was proven actually to be effective um, and in um, containing the virus and, and reversing it. And so to date, they've used about 7,500, maybe a little bit more of the Ebola vaccine um, in this area, and they've targeted the healthcare workers, which as you might remember also in 2014 was a big issue because healthcare workers who were on the front lines were also dying. Um, because they were coming into contact with these bodily fluids of those who were sick um, and also um, those immediate contacts of um, e confirmed, excuse me, Ebola cases. So there is something else interesting with this Ebola vaccine that I read that because it has not been approved that you need to get verbal confirmation from anyone that you give it to. What 
What does this look like? Because I read this in a snippet in one of our stories, but I feel like in practice that would actually could be problematic. I mean, it does have its um, advantages and disadvantages. Okay, so when you're telling um, some of these rural populations whose literacy or under comprehension may be at a different level, um, that this is not an approved drug, but we want you to take it because it is known to be effective. I mean, from what I have been told um, and in speaking with sources on the ground, it has been a bit problematic. But I think the understanding is it is a lifesaver at this point um, and it is being recognized as such. Um, and so there has been an acceptance um, of an understanding that it, it, it is um, one of the frontline um, response efforts right now for, for those contacts. Yeah, I, I would love to kind of tease this out and get more into the vaccine delivery portion of it because I think what struck me, um, like it's so good to hear that it's it's not hugely problematic um you know from what you're learning but i could see a scenario where perhaps an implementer comes to drc and then you know do you have the right language skills do you know how to communicate this properly are you you know taking into account all of the cultural factors like there feels like a big margin for error and just like that communications piece Well, I think what they've understood at this point is that you do have to have the support of the local um, health system um, from the ministry level all the way down to the local health worker, all the way down to the volunteer who is just there to lend a helping hand. Um, And I think that from what I've been told, the DRC health ministry is at the forefront of um, advising what works and what doesn't work at the local population. And also um, the knowledge sharing is definitely happening between the international players and the local players um, to make sure that it is one holistic approach um, and one um, comprehensive um, response effort. This sounds like a whole different ballgame from 2014. What we saw in 2014, exactly. I mean, I think the biggest thing was it, it got so out of hand um, in, in West Africa um, and, and that potential is always there because we are working in countries where the health systems are not, you know, um, as strong as in developed countries. They don't have the doctors. They don't have the epidemiologists. They don't have the specialists, um, one that may be able to detect um, the disease as quickly, but also to treat and contain. They might not have those systems in place. And so I think in 2014, what we've learned now four years later is that we have to be building those um, systems. I think this also speaks to um, some of the funds that came about post Ebola in 2014 and how these finances were there and readily available for emergency situations like this um, because that was another issue that we saw in 2014 was a slow response because the funding just wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's another piece of this that's really important to get into is kind of the funding mechanisms in place and that's part of it. I want to get into that in a second. But I also was curious about um, the preparedness efforts because there was a obviously a ton of energy right after the Ebola response to put in place, you know, preparedness mechanisms. But, you know, over time, things can happen. Like it can fall off a priority list if it's not at the forefront of everyone's minds. Um, don't When I say my, everyone's minds, I'm mostly talking about donors. There are so many disasters in the world right now. What kind of preparedness efforts did we see kind of post-2014 and how are those how are those impacting the response now? Sure. So um, generally um, in West Africa, there were um, 
training sessions that were done by the WHO. Also, there were um, materials and equipment that were there that were not there before in terms of laboratories, in terms of um, testing equipment for cases. And then, as I was mentioning before, some of these larger funds um, were set up to help um, be there in the, in the time of um, emergency need. Um, also, in the case of DRC, um, what may be a good thing about it this outbreak is that this isn't their first um, outbreak. And so in the DRC specifically, they were, they had already had a um, national emergency response plan that has this Ebola caveat um, that is there to, uh, that has the monitoring um, already in place. And so I think in certain countries, they, they are probably more prepared right now than others. But for those countries that are not prepared, there are these emergency funds that are ready to step in um, right away to to strengthen those health systems. Right. It sounds like, you know, clearly having an outbreak is a horrible thing, but it sounds like DRC was ready for this. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, and, and also, if we if we look at um, the fact that we we mentioned the geography and how they are surrounded by nine different countries, I think that um, though the concern is there because the countries surrounding DRC have not experienced Ebola outbreaks, I think that the international community has already taken into consideration um, that you know DRC may have had a leg up in recognizing the symptoms earlier or you know or early on, which um, sometimes may have the sim similarities to malaria um, and we're into rainy season so it may be easy to confuse but I think that um, for example WHO is already recognizing that these bordering countries need to be prepared um, they've started um, what they call preparedness trainings um, and that has already taken place right now so far in the Republic of Congo, Congo Brazzaville. Um, and then they've also stepped in and in the Central African Republic. Um, and that was June 18th through 20th, I believe my notes say here. And then also in Burundi, um, the 25th through the 29th. So starting very soon, they will be, they have prioritized already as part of their re regional response plan, um, how these bordering countries need to be aware. Um, they're including local health workers. Um, I think in Congo, Brazzaville, when I was reporting on this, they had about 50 health workers who were there. Also the international um, NGOs participated to make sure that there was not a duplication of efforts, um, to also make sure that all different aspects of the response was addressed um, in advance so that these, these places that have not had Ebola outbreaks in the past can be prepared. I wanna ask you more about the WHO response, but for anyone who has just tuned in, I'm Kate Midden here with Kristen Roby, our West Africa correspondent, talking about the current state of the Ebola response in the DRC and how it's been informed by the Ebola outbreak back in 2014. So you were talking about how you know the WHO has taken this very seriously. It's been kind of a fascinating thing to watch because you alluded to this earlier that in 2014, it felt like no one really woke up to how much of a crisis Ebola was until it was too late. And now I think it was something like within, was it a couple days or maybe a matter of hours that yeah. the head of the WHO, Dr. Tedros, actually flew to DRC to kind of see with his own two eyes what was happening there. Yeah, and 
Um, for those of you that couldn't join us at DevX World, we actually got to Skype him in. Um, and he had mentioned that, you know, this is his second go round and that, you know, his team didn't want him to be there. But for him, how can you inform and respond strategy at the highest level if you don't, you know, see hands on what is going on? I mean, of course, there are daily meetings that they have briefings um, and, and uh, response and, and updates meetings um, every morning from what I'm told. But um, at the highest level, how do we inform where we are going to spend this emergency fund money that is built, you know, multiples in, of millions of dollars um, if we don't know where those needs are exactly? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just I exactly to your point, I you, know, you think about being stationed in your office in New York or Geneva and hearing things like, you know, the geography is complicated, but it's a whole nother thing to go and look at the proximity of the river and, you know, being able to easily imagine someone being infected and going down the river and sending it elsewhere. Or yeah. there's something else that I believe you wrote about, about how the vaccines need to be stored at a specific cooler temperature. And yeah. you're talking about remote areas that may or may not have refrigeration. I mean, to really see the problem yeah. instead of just hearing about the problem, I imagine would be just hugely important for building like buy-in and motivation to do something. Yeah, and I mean, if we also think about the political context in the DRC at the moment and how what is happening in um, the capital of Kinshasa may also be impacting the response um, and the feasibility and the, the ease of actually getting these um, equipments and medicines um, into the Bikoro region. As I mentioned, it's in the Northwest. It's a bit remote. Um, and even where... Um, the the outbreak this time started in May 8th and where it has reached now is in two different areas, which I've heard takes about two to three hours to reach um, about 80 kilometers. So um, it, it, it shows that the potential is there for this spread and that we need to be ahead. Um, I think that's something also that we learned from 2014 is, is to be proactive instead of reactive. I mean, you can't plan for an Ebola outbreak, obviously, but you can be aware and you can, um, um, you, you can, have a response that that minimizes uh, the damage and minimizes the deaths. So, what? How does the political situation impact this? I mean, for those of us who aren't as familiar with West African politics, sure, there has been internal conflict in the DRC for about four to five years, which is a, is an on again, off again situation that that stems many decades in the country. Um, there has been a long term leadership um, in Kibala and and a change of of. Um, wanting for a change of government for some um, and and that causes tensions in the country um, they are expected to have um, a presidential election in December um, so we are all keeping our eyes peeled for that but um, there have been hundreds of millions of dollars I mean spent in a humanitarian response just over the past year you know um, and I think that it's also been one of what we've reported as one of the most underreported crisis, one of the most least funded crises. And so how does that impact what they're trying to do when they need to pass through um, Kinshasa? They have made a humanitarian um, um, air air uh, transfer so that they can get materials in and out. But I think that this air transport is also um, not been as as fluid as they would like just because they do have to work around armed forces. It does take a bit of negotiation, as I'm told. And so um, we do have to be aware that the political situation there is also or can also have a negative impact on um, the humanitarian response. Um, some hundred 
kilometers away. Yeah, I mean, let me be upfront about my ignorance about you know the internal machinations of how politics about the political system of the DRC. But you, you, we were talking earlier about how the health ministry is really leading on this response, and it's kind of at the at the fore, you know, as should be of managing this outbreak. But I imagine that having a political transition in the middle of trying to manage that would make things even more complicated. Yeah, so we we are all on, on the lookout to see what that um, what that will look like. But I think what is more important is the knowledge sharing that is happening right now and how that is something that you can't take away from them. Whether you change who is the, the, the ministry, uh, you know, the head minister of health or, or who that person may be. I think what is more important is that, you know, people are not, um, the international community is not just um, touching down, trying to patch, you know, all the all the bruises, and then and then ready to jump back out, um, which has been issues, you know, in, in some emergency response efforts. And so, what I was pleased to hear from um, Ibrahim Afal, who is the regional emergency response coordinator um, or director for Africa um, for the WHO, he made it very clear um, that the DRC Ministry of Health is very hands on. They are very present, um, and that trickles down all the way down to the local health center. So I want to. I do want to get into the financing of everything. Yeah. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier that the initial appeal went out for twenty six million dollars. It was funded pretty quickly. Who who are some of the actors that have kind of come up with the money? early on and kind of what is the financing landscape looking like right now? Sure. So I was actually doing some reading this morning um, and their update from June 19th actually said that their um, funding needs have grown from 26 million. I think we're up to now 57 million. Um, and so there is there is a gap. And I think that is because they are trying trying to plan ahead. Um, and in that becomes a greater financial need. But we saw right off um, huge huge uh, support from the UK. The UK government um, pledged about one million pounds, about 1.3 million um, dollars through their joint initiative on epidemic preparedness. So again, having that uh, emergency fund that is already there um, and ready to be used in emergency situations. Um, The UN released an initial two million from their SURF or Central Emergency Response Fund. Um, The US was also prepared um, and and jumped right in through um, the US Agency for International Development, USAID, um, with one million dollars. And and the add-on funding is is slowly coming in. Um, So um, I know other smaller players, Italy, um, Germany, have also been supportive. Um, so I think it, it has been a, a global response. Yeah, and it's it's been interesting to look at that landscape too because it's not just governments anymore. Um, you know, I, when did the pandemic financing facility at the World Bank get stood up? I mean, it, it was a year ago, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, so to see that in yeah. one year, how you're already, how we are already mobilizing all these different actors to realize, you know, what the response needs is not. I mean, the funding does play a major part in actually mobilizing resources, human resources, um, equipment, and so I think that's what we've seen in in this outbreak. So, from what you have seen, you know, you when you are not in D.C. for a very small portion of the year. Yeah. Um, you, you are based in Abidjan. From where you sit, what do you see looking ahead as the biggest obstacles to being able to contain a Ebola outbreak? And what, where do you find hope in this with the tools that we may not have had before? 
Yeah, so I definitely think the the biggest um, risk factor is the geography and the fact that they are along the Congo River. I believe there's um, a few weeks ago, the uh, International Organization for for Migration, um, they did uh, send out a team of epidemiologists and medical staff that would be stationed at about 16 points along the Congo River, Um, but there's more than 60 entry points along the Congo River. So if we think about that, we do also see where there is more need um, to make sure that we're doing all possible to contain the efforts. Um, At this point, Angola has closed their border with the DRC. Um, There aren't any major um, or actually internationally um, recognized travel restrictions to or from the DRC at this point, Um, but there are more than two dozen countries that are screening um, and also um, uh, monitoring those who are traveling from the DRC. So there are countries in the in the West and Central Africa, um, Central Africa region that are keeping an eye on those people that are coming from DRC just to make sure, um, because we know that the first case in 2014 started in Guinea and, and um, was easily spread to other countries in the region just by traveling across the border, mm-hmm. which is which is quite fluid in, in Africa. So I think that's something that we're that we're watching. Yeah. Is the screening? Is it the same is is it like taking a temperature yeah so there is that there's also a questionnaire that i believe that is being asked um in terms of some of the other symptoms that may be uh, monitored such as diarrhea such as nausea things like that um so there is a questionnaire but there's also the the temperature screening which is the the first um telltale sign of of um the ebola virus yeah and then the other side of that you know what what about this time makes you hopeful that this will be contained. Yeah, yeah. I think the speed of the reaction um, has me quite hopeful. The fact that this is not the first um, outbreak, um, it, it makes me quite hopeful that that the people were, that those local actors on the ground were a bit more prepared, but also that um, that that the fact that, like I said, this is a global response and many actors have jumped in, you know, within 24 to 36 hours of the first noticed um, case or confirmed case. Um, I think that that sends a positive message. I think that that does leave those hopeful. And from what I understand with the response, there's a lot of on the ground, door to door, you know, very grassroots local response from those even in the community. Um, and I'm I'm pleased to know that there is um, the local communities taking ownership of this response. And I think that is what's also important is that um, there's an Ebola song with some of the school children um, and in the Bikoro region. What yeah, is what is, <laughs> you have to look that. it up on YouTube. But um, there's a there's like a song that they actually sing about how I have to wash my hands um, and how I understand that, you know, I can't um, shake hands anymore and I can't give kisses anymore. And it's actually really, really compelling because the the young child, the young boy looks like he's he's no more than eight to 10 years old. But the fact that even he understands, I think that is something that we haven't seen before where, you know, the understanding is a lot more widespread. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard this echoed by so many people, but it's just, it, it reiterates the importance how probably the most important actors in all of this and keeping things contained in prevention are just the frontline local health the, workers. The local community, yeah. yeah. It, it, it doesn't get more simple than that, you know? We will post that video in the comments on YouTube. We should. All right, well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. It is always such a joy to have you in town. Thank you for having me, Kate. It's been a pleasure. Be sure to follow Kristen on Twitter at Roby Reports and follow us at DevX for the latest on the Ebola 
I'm not going to call it an epidemic. It will not be an epidemic this time. We'll just say the response. On the Ebola response and what it means for professionals working in global health, humanitarian assistance, and international development. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.